0: Hello and welcome to this Linklater's Three Hair Court joint panel discussion on financial fair play in football. I'm Mark Warren, a managing associate in Linklater's banking team in Amsterdam and a member of the firm's sports sector team. Uh, I'm a regular contributor to the sports law blog that Linklater's has, Sporting Links, which I encourage you to check out for yourself on the Linklater's website. So FFP and the financing of sports teams and leagues, that's been a hot topic in football in recent months and That's been due to the regulations we've seen in Europe and in England, the impact of COVID, and, of course, the transfer window that's been coming to a close across Europe. So I'm happy to introduce a panel today who are going to talk about FFP and some of the issues that stakeholders are thinking about at the moment. So firstly, there's Jason Shadlow-Rest. He's a managing associate in Linklater's dispute resolution team in London and a member of the sports sector team. Jason works with clients on a broad range of commercial disputes, including competition matters, and he's advised in the context of broadcasting contract issues in sport. There's Kalin Ivanov, who's an associate in Linklater's banking team in Frankfurt. Kalin is a former uh, football player and has been a contributor to the Linklater's sports sector team too, with a focus in particular on FFP. And Thomas Horton, who's a barrister at Three Hair Court Chambers and of the website Football Law that's footballlaw.co.uk. And you can find someone on Twitter too at the Football Law. I think the obvious place to start is with UEFA and their financial fair play. That's what everyone thinks of most in relation to FFP. So, Callin, how about you kick us off uh, with just a basic, basically a simple summary of what is FFP and what it's trying to do?
1: Thank you, Mark. When we say FFP, we typically mean the UEFA club licensing and financial fair play regulations which essentially is a set of rules introduced to improve the financial discipline of European football clubs. The rules were enacted back in 2010 and were updated several times along the way. The aim was to prevent financial doping from outside sources following the involvement of wealthy benefactors in the European football. FFP rules outlined the framework for financial behaviour and were built around two main areas. An obligation for clubs to balance their books and an obligation for clubs to meet all their transfer and employee payment commitments at all times. The clubs need to comply with the financial fair play regulations in order to obtain license and participate in UEFA competitions in the upcoming season. The centerpiece of FFP is the break-even requirement, which aims to ensure that clubs operate on the basis of their own revenue. A club is in compliance with the break-even requirement if the break-even result is a surplus or a deficit which is not more than 5 million euro or not more than 30 million euro if that excess amount is entirely covered by contributions from equity participants. The break-even result is the difference between relevant income and the relevant expenses, both terms as defined in the financial fair play regulations. Those are the income and expenses from football-related activities, as suggested for the purpose of the break-even requirement and subject to reconciliation to the consolidated financial statements. Later on, we can discuss how the player transfers and different accounting methods can affect the break-even result.
0: So that's FFP, but obviously with any rule, it can be broken. So it's important to also know about the enforcement process. Jason. We'll be able to give us a brief overview on that side of things.
2: Sure. Thanks very much, Mark. Um, so enforcement has been a, a real hot topic and one we've been monitoring closely. So um, in assessing the break-even requirement, UEFA assesses this through its independent club financial control body, or the CFCB. And the CFCB is split into two chambers, which I'll come on to in a moment. But in essence, the CFCB analyzes and monitors each season three years' worth of club financial figures for all clubs participating in UEFA competitions. Now, pausing there and touching just briefly on the sanctions, which I want to always get the headlines, depending on various factors, such as the trend of the break-even results that Callum was referring to, there are different disciplinary measures that can be imposed against the club. These can massively range. They can go from a warning or a fine in some sort of less serious instances, all the way up to deductions of points, withholding of revenues, and even as far as disqualification from competitions and withdrawal of the title or awards, there's some serious measures in there. Now, sanctions to one side, coming back to the CFCB's two chambers. The first is an investigatory chamber. Now, the investigatory chamber determines whether there is a case to be heard in the first place. It's similar to a public prosecutor in a criminal justice system in this respect. It's responsible for monitoring financials, collecting evidence, and investigating cases against clubs. At the end of the investigation, the chamber can dismiss the case, conclude a settlement agreement, and it can apply certain of the less serious measures, or it can refer to the second chamber, um, the adjudicatory chamber. So the adjudicatory chamber uh, decides cases referred to it by the investigatory chamber, or it reviews decisions of the investigatory chamber for manifest error. Now, the adjudicatory chamber operates effectively like a court. It determines a case. It accepts written submissions, and it conducts oral hearings, and it's got quite a legal makeup. It's chaired, for example, by a former judge of the Court of Justice of the European Union. And the adjudicatory chamber can impose disciplinary measures. It can uphold, reject, or modify the decisions of the investigatory chamber. Finally, once we've got past the the two chambers of the CFCB, any party directly affected then has the right to appeal a final decision before the Court of Arbitration for Sports, or CAT, um, in accordance with the relevant provisions of the UEFA statutes. Um, and CAT often tends to be the end of the line in terms of, of the appeal process to the extent there is one.
0: Thanks, Jason. So we have there the details really on how FFP works, how it's enforced. Tom, if you could give us some background, how in practice have we actually seen UEFA using their powers under FFP?
3: Thanks, Mark. I think one of the notable trends in in recent times has been the good use of settlement agreements, which for for everybody involved is better. Um, So, for example, in August of this year, uh, there were a bundle of settlement agreements announced by the CFCB. Um, uh, and in particular from the investigatory chamber, because that's where the settlement agreements are made. It stops it going ahead to that adjudicatory chamber stage that Jason touched upon. And, and from those, uh, that, sorry, that bundle of, of assessment agreements announced in August of this year, uh, there were, uh, amongst other settlement agreements, with Lille from the French League One, uh, Wolverhampton Wanderers from the Premier League, and Istanbul basak from Turkey as well. Um, And when you look at the settlement agreements that they have as their end goal um, to try and put that club back in compliance with the uh, financial fair play regulations. And, and the way that they achieve this is, is through a mixture of measures and, and jason touched upon those sanctions that are ultimately available where there has been a breach of the financial fair pay regulations and, and what you'll see in these settlement agreements is a bit of a toned down version of those sanctions available um, so in respect of legal uh, for example that they have operational and financial measures which Amongst other things, committed the club to having a maximum break even deficit of uh, 20 million euros for the reporting period ending in 2021 Uh, and then also similar measures um, sanction wise of uh, withholding of prize money from uh, Lille's participation in UEFA club competitions. And there were similar measures, for example, with Wolverhampton Wanderers, um, again, committing to having a a maximum uh, break, even deficit of uh, 30 million euros for the uh, reporting period ending in 2020. uh, So the one that's just concluded, actually. Um, But again, a withholding of prize money in respect of their participation in UEFA club competitions. Of course, they were involved in the uh, Europa League over the course of last season. And the the, the use of those settlement agreements, and indeed the the willingness of clubs to enter into those settlement agreements, demonstrates, in my opinion, the success of the enforcement of the financial fair play regulations by the CFCB. And firstly, it shows that there is cooperation between clubs and the CFCB, which allows for an effective uh, financial fair play uh, system. And this is you know indicative of the enforcement of the financial fair play regulations generally as well um you know one of the reasons I anticipate that clubs enter into these settlement agreements is because there are far more examples of defenses to breaches of financial fair play regulations being unsuccessful. Than successful, so so why would a club want to risk spending significant time and costs trying to defend their breaches of the financial fair play regulations when it can enter into the assessment agreements and and cut to the chase, so to speak, uh, but then still you know you know play in the competitions and avoid, I suppose, the ultimate sanction of being banned from a UEFA club competition. Um, and it's also very useful from you know UEFA's and the CFCB's perspective, because these settlement agreements really drive compliance with the financial fair play regulations in a sort of business plan type of way. Um, but then also what's really useful to the CFCB is that, whilst it has that, if the club fails to comply with the settlement agreements, then the CFCB can essentially take matters back into their own hands and have the matter referred to the CFCB's adjudicatory chamber uh, to be dealt with there. And it might be that more severe sanctions are, are are implemented.
2: Right.
0: Thanks for that. That um, it's interesting. The popular narrative is that FFP is in trouble because occasionally sentences are overturned on appeal. But what you're saying there is essentially. There are many clubs behind the scenes who are having these settlement agreements, and FFP is having an effect. So, Jason, to come back to you, it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on what is the future of FFP now? What are we expecting UEFA to do? Will there be changes, maybe? And can we see it still be a successful, relevant part of UEFA's toolkit?
2: Thanks, Mark. Yeah. uh, What does the future hold? Well, um, it's a million-dollar question, isn't it? I mean, for my part, I I absolutely agree with Tom that, um, you know, any suggestion that uh, FFP will will be going away anytime soon, I think it it is at best premature and and otherwise probably just wrong. uh, At this point in time, what does appear to be the case is that it's going to be sticking around. So, Tom mentioned the trend of settlements that we've seen that have been publicized Um, And we're continuing to see enforcement action by the CFCB um, primarily in in the form of those settlements, but also in firmer action as well. Um, It was announced over the course of summer that uh, the Turkish club Travzon Sport, for example, uh, recently had a one-year ban on its participation in UEFA club competitions upheld by CAS. So clearly UEFA and its CFCB consider things to be business as usual from their perspective. Um, There are a couple of particular considerations as we look ahead to the future, though, that I wanted to talk about briefly. One concerns procedure, and another is on competition challenges. So in terms of procedure, which you specifically mentioned, Mark, um, the, the question I think we have now is does UEFA want to take the chance to clarify the principles and procedures underlying its enforcement action to strengthen its arsenal in light of uh, recent CAF's juris, jurisprudence? So, To give a couple of examples, could UEFA seek to bolster the available evidence that it has in terms of enforcement actions? And I think it should be remembered here that uh, past jurisprudence confirms that where there are serious allegations, that evidence needs to be particularly cogent. Could UEFA, for example, insert stronger powers into its rules uh, to obtain relevant documents from clubs, their owners, and their sponsors? Could it require contractual terms, for example, in those arrangements that mean that information has to be provided to the CFCB on a regular basis? And then another example just in the procedural issues there, it comes to the timing of enforcement. So to ensure that UA isn't blindsided by breaches that it doesn't know about until later in the day, given that there is a five-year limitation period. Could those rules be clarified and tweaked, for example, to reflect that time only starts to run for enforcement when UEFA did or reasonably could have been expected to gain knowledge of misconduct rather than just a trigger of when the breaches actually occurred? Um, so there are, there are potentially avenues there. Um, you know, creation of a financial regulatory system in an area as complicated as football is, is unlikely to be settled in, in sort of a single go. Um, But there's an an opportunity there, I think, potentially a window for changes to be made to, to strengthen the CFCB's enforcement action. So then I mentioned competition as well. Now, over the years, case law has developed to make very clear that competition law does apply in sport, albeit through a particular lens. Set against that background, FFP has previously been challenged, for example, by Turkish club Galatasaray, on the basis of alleged incompatibility with EU competition law, amongst others, including Article 101 on the Treaty of the Functioning of the European Union. Now, that claim was unsuccessful before cast, but a restriction by effect argument fell down, really, uh, based on the judgment for a lack of economic evidence. and It wasn't really tested to the full extent. So it does therefore feel, to me at least, as if the door remains just a bit ajar for a formal economically evidenced claim in this regard, um, taking a step back. One of the arguable side effects of FFP, looking at it from a helicopter view, is that it entrenches the existing elite somewhat. Biggest clubs with established revenues have an advantage um, in that they can continue to spend to a greater degree than other clubs who don't yet have those revenue streams in place. So query whether an aggrieved club or other stakeholder, for example, might consider in the future another bite at that particular cherry.
0: Thanks, Jason. So- It shows there may be changes that may come in the medium to long term. Calvin, if I could just come back to you, there may be some questions in the short term in relation to COVID-19, where we've already seen UEFA make some adjustments to FFP for clubs.
1: Due to the lack of income from broadcasting rights and matchday tickets. For this reason, UEFA established a working group to tackle the economic impact of COVID-19, which eventually led to an addendum to the FFP regulations adopted in June this year. The amendments introduced with the addendum cover two main sections of the FFP rules. First is the no overdue payables enhanced rules, which were amended for the current reporting period and provide the clubs with an additional month to settle their monetary obligations towards other clubs, employees and tax authorities and prove to the licensor that they have a clean sheet. Second, certain amendments were made with respect to the loss of revenue due to COVID-19 and in particular postponing the assessment of financial year 2020 and adjusting the breakeven result for the reporting period ending 2020 and 2021, which would be considered as a single reporting period for the purposes of the calculation of the breakeven result. The adjustments to the breakeven result are applied in a two-step sequential manner. First, if the break-even result calculated for the reporting period which captures the financial year 2020 is a deficit, such result should be halved and then the remaining break-even deficit can be further adjusted for the adverse financial impact due to COVID-19. For the purposes of such adjustment, COVID-19 adverse financial impact is the loss of revenue calculated as the difference between the actual average revenue for the reporting periods ending in 2020 and 2021 and the corresponding anticipated average revenues for the same periods, whereas the projections for the anticipated average revenues are based on the actual numbers reported in the preceding reporting period ending in the year 2019.
0: Thanks, Colin. So, yeah, there's a lot of detail there, but essentially for people, the clubs have been given an extra year to kind of balance out some of their losses, which they've suffered from COVID. So I think from there, we can leave the world of European football to bring things specifically to England and to EFL Championship where they have their own version of financial fair play, the profitability and sustainability rules. So, Tom, if I could bring this to you, could you set out for us just a brief outline on how this works?
3: As, as brief as I possibly can, of course, Mark. Um, so with the uh, championships, profitability and sustainability rules, and um, clubs, uh, so just those clubs in the championship, are monitored over a three-year period, uh, but no more than £39 million Um, Sorry, not per year, I do apologise, over that three-year period, uh, but no more than £39 million over the three-year period. And that's known as the upper loss threshold. And the way that clubs um, comply with this is that they, uh, on on the 1st of March of each each season, they submit to the EFL um, its annual accounts for uh, the present year. Uh, which is made up of estimated profit and loss accounts uh, and a balance sheet for the same, uh, but then also for the uh, two years previously. So you have that three-year uh, calculation period to take into account. And from those figures, there will be a, a profitability and sustainability calculation, uh, which is uh, the aggregation of the club's adjusted earnings before tax uh, for that three-year relevant periods, now that adjusted earnings before tax is the club's earnings before tax generally uh, but it excludes costs that the club have incurred for example in respect of uh, depreciation or impairment of tangible fixed assets um women's football expenditure uh, youth development expenditure and then specifically for the 2019-20 and the 2021 seasons, uh, what's known as COVID-19 costs. And, and that's defined as lost revenues or exceptional costs incurred by a club uh, that are directly attributable to the COVID, sorry, COVID-19 sorry, covid pandemic. Um, so it's quite interesting that there's been that specific um, measurement put in place for the next couple of years at the very least, try and assist clubs uh, going forward and the financial impacts that COVID-19 has had upon them. What the EFL then does is it looks at those figures, and if a club has made a loss, even if it's under that lower loss threshold of £15 million over the three-year period, then the EFL will consider whether the club will be able to uh, pay its liabilities and fulfil its fixture obligations throughout the season. And to ensure that those requirements are met, if the EFL does have some concerns about the club's finances, uh, they may require the club to submit to the EFL a budget plan uh, showing that, you know, those financial uh, requirements and its fixture obligations will be met. Uh, But it could also uh, put the club under an an embargo, essentially. They can refuse to uh, accept the club's registrations of players or of um, Uh, players contracts if they've been renewed Uh, so you can already see there's quite significant sanctioning measures available to the EFL when it comes to compliance if you have a club that has made a loss in excess of the lower loss threshold so again that's the 15 million pounds over the three-year periods uh, then the club will be required to provide to uh, the EFL uh, further financial information um, in respect of its predicted finances for the two years ahead so not entirely dissimilar to that business plan requirements if you're below the £15 million threshold as well. But then in addition to that, the club will need to provide evidence of secure funding uh, in respect of the losses it's already made in the previous years, but then also any losses forecasted to be made in the two years ahead as well. Um, again, there might be that embargo situation where the EFL says um, to the club, Uh, No, you can't register any more players and you can't register that new players contract as well. And then at at the very extreme end where a club makes losses in excess of the upper loss threshold. So that's the 39 million pounds over um, the three year periods. uh, Then again, those options of a business plan and a player embargo are available. But then, significantly, uh, that matter will be treated as a breach of the EFL's rules or regulations to be more particular. And that will be referred to an independent disciplinary commission uh, for an appropriate sanction to be imposed. Uh, So the the whole assessment and the the prosecution uh, of the CPSR all kind of ties into one insofar as an explanation of it is warranted. Uh, and you can see, you know, naturally, the, the greater the losses, the more severe the sanction is likely to be for the club.
0: Thanks, Tom, so certainly at a very high level, at least, it seems very similar to the UEFA system, its clubs it, and how much money they're making in profits or losses. And there's sanctions there for the authorities. Callin, could you just maybe give us your thoughts on any kind of key similarities, differences? between the UEFA model and the championship model?
1: I think the UEFA model and the championship model are based on the same fundamentals. I find differences in terms of numbers and thresholds, but structurally, they have many similarities and essentially they promote the same values, such as responsible spending, financial discipline, and economic sustainability.
0: Thanks, Callan. So then coming back to you again tom on the enforcement process how have we seen that work out so far in the championship
3: well i, I don't think it's uh unknown to anyone that the uh, the efl has been very busy issuing charges and independent disciplinary commissions have been very busy uh, considering those charges against clubs for their alleged breaches of the championship's profitability and sustainability rules and that's in particular respects of uh, the the upper loss threshold being breached uh, that 39 million pounds loss or more over the three-year period Uh, as i touched upon earlier when you're looking at those lower losses so when you're around the lower loss threshold or below the upper loss threshold things are very much more procedural uh, and decisions are taken more so by uh, the the efl itself uh, when deciding to either require a business plan or, or, or to impose a transfer embargo, or to to just simply require further information or secure funding from the club. When it comes to these upper loss threshold um, uh, breaches, um, the, the sanctions available to the EFL are great, and I you know. T- what jason mentioned earlier when looking at the um the sanctions available to uefa um it, it's very similar with uh, the efl as well that you know the, the greater the breach the greater the sanction and it could be anything from a fine uh or you know to the extreme end of a points deduction as well which can have you know greater ramifications for clubs if, if they're going to be around the relegation zone, or if they're simply going to be missing out on planned promotion, either through the playoffs or or automatic promotion as well.
0: Right. So there's obviously a lot there at stake. And for all those clubs in the championship desperate to go into the Premier League, there's obviously the prize there at stake if they manage to find a way to maybe squeeze out a bit of extra money and get to the promised land. So what have you seen so far, Tom, in relation to maybe – some accounting and some kind of skirting of the rules to maybe try and get some extra you know, support into clubs?
3: Yeah, well, I think um, lawyers and accountants have certainly been kept busy um, over the past few years insofar in as the championship's profitability and sustainability rules are concerned. And, and the elephant in the room being um, championship clubs' use of the uh, imaginative practice of selling their stadium to a separate legal entity so long as it's at a fair market value uh, which is something that's been uh, considered by independent disciplinary commissions recently uh, and and then the sale of that stadium um is used by the club that sold it the revenues are taken from that sale to essentially try and push its losses below the relevant thresholds and avoid the efl taking any measures or facing a sanction from an independent disciplinary commission it, it's effective. It's been used by several clubs um, in in recent years. So you've seen Aston Villa, uh, Derby, uh, Sheffield Wednesday, and Reading use this method recently. And, and bar Sheffield Wednesday, it's worked effectively for those clubs as well. That, that they've managed to bring their losses uh, below the relevant thresholds to avoid, um, you know, a, a penalty uh, being imposed. Thanks, Tom.
0: And talking of that disciplinary commission, I was going to come to you now, Jason. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about some of the procedural issues that we've had with the enforcement, and maybe some of the criticisms that clubs have leveled at the EFL?
2: Yeah, sure. So I um, won't get sort of too far into the detail of the cases, because I think you, you could go on for, this for some time. We've only got a, a particular amount of time for this webinar. Um, but I think we have a reminder here, really, about the devil really being in the detail and that rules need to be clear. They need to be complete and they need to be comprehensive. But added to that, enforcement action needs to be taken promptly, and it needs to be taken in a focused way. So I'll touch on two examples. Tom's mentioned both of them, the Derby and the uh, Sheffer Wednesday uh, cases. So taking Derby first, the EFL's case against Derby, which is actually subject to an appeal, part of that case also concerned the accounting of payments in respective players. Um, In its arguments, the EFL had said that amortization had to be recorded in a straight line, and that Derby's more creative approach um, that ensured that it it hadn't sort of exceeded permissible losses um, masked that the the club was effectively um, in breach. And the EFL's case really fell down in large part because there was simply nothing in the rules to prevent the accounting measures that Derby had in place. Um, the rules were simply lacking in that regard. Um, so, turning to the Sheffield Wednesday case, um, the issue concerned, as, as Tom mentioned, uh, the sale of, of the club's Hillsborough Stadium, the valuation of it, and the timing of its inclusion in accounts. In that case, which we touched on on, on sporting links, um, the EFL actually succeeded and a 12 point deduction was applied. However, rather than rele- relegating Sheffield Wednesday last season, that deduction has only been applied from the start of this season. And reaching that conclusion, the Commission noted that the case had been laid in large part because of the EFL's pursuit of other unnecessary charges. And it stated that a more focused enforcement could have been brought earlier and more vigorously. Um, So for clubs like Charlton Athletic, who were relegated, I think, by a single point last season, their fate was on a knife edge, and to some degree determined by the outcome of that decision and the timing of the application of the points deduction. So you have a domino effect there of further potential legal issues resulting um, from, from enforcement issues. Um, so I, I think you know, the, the learning point is to, to get the rules clear and in a, in a settled way that you're happy that you've covered everything off, and once you've done that to make sure you get your enforcement action in. Uh, and you do so swiftly and in a focused way.
0: Right. And the big picture of all of this is really the goal of the championship to have clubs actually staying in good financial condition. Could you maybe give us a bit of an update on what we've actually seen in practice has been a consequence of PNS?
2: Yeah. So I, I think that, you know, the, la- the last point that I just wanted to mention in this area is a question of the effectiveness of the measures, which I think is where you could pl- apply a sort of fairly healthy. Uh, question mark, Um, both pre- and post-COVID-19, there have have been, I think it's fair to say, some financial horror stories, uh, which I suspect supporters of Bolton and Wigan would be able to walk you through in in, in a bit more uh, emotional detail than than I would. Um, But both of those clubs have have suffered from real difficulty, and I think what that raises is the question of whether the rules have actually worked and achieved their outcomes. Um, That's perhaps a, a debate for another day. But the implementation of salary caps that, that are being discussed and considered um, across many leagues, but including the championship, and we'll touch on those later on, uh, what's, what's currently in place, League one and League two, those measures have been driven in part by COVID, but even so, I think it pours fuel on that particular fire of that debate.
0: So now I want to turn to some of the specifics around FFP and looking at things like loans and sponsorship and transfers and so on. And I want to come back to you now, Callan, on related party transactions. So we've seen mentioned already in relation to the championship, but it's also been the case with UEFA that occasionally we have owners involved in transactions with their clubs. And this does have an impact on how the regulations are enforced. So, could you just share with us a little about how related party transactions are being dealt with under the different FFP
4: rules? Uh, In this, Mark, related party transactions are subject to special treatment under the financial fair play play rules. And for the purposes of calculating the break-even result, the related party transactions should be assessed on the basis of their fair value. Also, the the club, uh, the club financial control body has the power to adjust the numbers of such related party transactions for the calculation of the break-even result if it considers that such transactions do not reflect the fair value. It is interesting to note that typically the related party transactions are associated with sponsorship agreements as a form of uh, disguised uh, contribution to the equity or disguised financing. Uh, and, uh, this is specifically the case when the owner of the club is a wealthy benefactor. There are a couple of reasons why the owner would prefer sponsorship agreements rather than a capital contribution as a form of financial injection. From sponsor's perspective, the amount paid under the sponsorship agreement can be counted as expense on the level of the sponsor entity, unlike a capital contribution thus minimizing the tax base and, consequently, the tax leakage. In general, this approach leads to better financial optimization for the sponsor entity. And also, from CLUF's perspective, the amount received under the sponsorship agreement could be treated and and would be treated as relevant income, unlike the capital contribution, which is not treated as, as relevant income. And uh, this way, it improves the break-even results uh, of, the, of the club.
0: Thanks, Callen. That's clear. So essentially, clubs can get an advantage if they can sometimes structure money coming from their owner instead as sponsorship. So now I also want to look at loans. So obviously, with COVID around and everyone's thinking about how they can finance their clubs, and loan financing is an obvious source of income, or rather obvious, source of cash to go into the business. Can you again, Kalin, just set out for us some of the things that clubs have to consider about how loans are treated under UEFA's FFP?
4: Uh, Yes, in the context of, of the FFP rules, an important point to consider when obtaining external financing is the Sustainable Debt Indicator. This indicator represents a test which is similar to the leverage ratio covenant often used in the financial agreements. The test uses two financial metrics. One is the relevant debt, and the other one being the relevant earnings, whereas both of them are subject to certain adjustments. The indicator would be triggered if the relevant debt exceeds 30 million euro, and, and I'm saying and, because those are cumulative uh, preconditions, and a greater than seven times the relevant earnings. So this is, Mark, I guess you experience those quite often in your daily basis work. Uh, and this is also part of the regulations of, uh, of the European clubs. The consequences are that the club in breach of the indicator should provide the break-even information for the projected reporting period, being the reporting period known in the financial fair play uh, rules as uh, T plus one. A couple of other points uh, which are external to the financial fair play rules can be considered when it comes about uh, financing agreements to, to football clubs, and those are rather related to the structure of the financing and the unexpected cyclicality of the revenue. Uh, this may be due to, for example, another lockdown or limitation to travel and make tours in other continents, which leads to, to, which tends to be very... Low- lucrative, and uh, when clubs are not allowed to, to take those tours, they, they experience a loss of revenue, which may, of course, impact uh, the, the compliance with covenants in their financing agreements.
0: Thanks, Callan. And putting FFP aside ever so slightly, obviously, there's also risk for disputes between parties at this time when COVID is around. Uh, Jason, be interested to hear your thoughts on what we're seeing in terms of potential disputes coming between parties in relation to their financing.
2: Yeah, I think it's an important point, Mark. Um, so one of the key things arises here in the context of COVID when we're looking at parties who might be negotiating and agreeing loan and sponsorship agreements at this time. I think all parties really need to be mindful of the ongoing uncertainty that arises from potential spikes in COVID-19 cases and what that can mean for legal rights and obligations in contracts. And I say that whether or not the contract expressly provides for certain eventualities or whether it's silent on them. And this uncertainty is something that that really needs to be accounted for in the contract. So, such as what I mean there is, is what happens if there is a cancellation or suspension of fixtures, and particularly for a prolonged period. So to give an example where security under financing agreements could include, for example, uh, a form of security interest in a club's broadcasting income, parties just need to be mindful that that the agreement needs to account for the risk that this income might not be immediately forthcoming if football is stopped again. Um, And I think as, as a sort of broader observation you know we've learned many things from this ongoing pandemic but one of them i think that we've learned uh, in a footballing but but in a broader legal environment is that contractual uncertainty is a real breeding ground for legal disputes and, and i don't think this is any different
0: thanks jason so parties don't just have to think about how ffps may going to be impacted by their loans they also just need to generally think about how it's going to impact their business and COVID, like everything else, had an impact on their business. And now, finally, to bring it back to you, Callin, on player transfers, obviously the transfer window has just been coming to a close, and some people queried how clubs, despite all their losses from COVID, are managing to finance player transfers and also stay in compliance with FFP. Could you maybe just explain for us how some clubs have managed to balance their books from an FFP standpoint?
4: Uh, yes, Mark, this is a main point indeed. Um, so there are two methods of accounting for player registrations or player transfers in, in jargon and uh, those are the capitalization and amortization on one hand and the income and expense on the other hand. The choice of such methods must be consistently applied and will have a significant impact on the break-even result. After having reviewed the financial statements of a few of the big European clubs, I noticed that the preferred approach, which is not surprising, is the capitalization and amortization. Uh, Capitalization and amortization treats the registration of new players as acquisition of assets, which means that the cost of registration, being the amount paid to the seller and other transaction costs, are capitalized on the balance sheet and such amount is amortized over the period of the contract of the player. For example, if the transfer price is 100 million, with a five-year contract with the player. This means that the amount amortized each year would be $20 million per year. Uh, this, would go, this amount of $20 million would go in the relevant expense for the calculation of the break-even result for the, the particular reporting period. When player registration is sold or, so to say, transferred out prior to the expiration of the contract, then if the disposal proceeds are higher than the book value of the player registration, the club seller would uh, report a profit which would count as a relevant income for the purposes of the breakeven result. The other method is the uh, income and expenses, uh, which is uh, rather simple compared to the capitalization and amortization, and the cost of acquisition of nuclear, nuclear are recorded as expense in the respective reporting period. This means that uh, in the example of the $100 million transfer, the whole amount paid for the player's registration would count as relevant expense in the same period uh, when the, the transfer occurred. Respectively, in case of disposal of player registration, the net proceeds are recorded as relevant income in whole in the respective reporting period. So I hope this is clear, but uh, I understand it's quite technical. So. If you have any questions,
0: uh... Thanks, Kelly. I think that's clear well, as far as accounting can be clear to the layman. Um, but essentially, there is a mismatch there between how things are dealt with for sales, how they're dealt with for purchases, and the clubs are making the most of it. So while we are talking about players, I want to now switch on to EFL League One, League Two, that this summer we've seen a salary cap be introduced. And that's been roughly an alien concept to English football, at least since the maximum wage was abolished back in the 60s. Um, So Tom, if I can come back to you, could you set out for us how the new salary cap is supposed
3: to work? Absolutely. Thanks, Mark. So, yeah, as you rightly identified, the EFL's League One and League Two salary caps um, are, in their current version, effective from this season. Uh, there is one point, and I think Jason's going to touch upon this as well in, in a moment, that there, there was um, a salary cap for uh, League One and League Two before these new rules came into effect, al- al- albeit that the way that that cap worked, it didn't really amount to a cap at all. So. In, in, in certain respects, Mark, you're, you're correct that there, was, there wasn't a cap before, um, but focusing on, on, on the rules as they now stand following the introduction for this year and the, the rules for League One and League Two are very similar if not the same uh, the main difference being the the value of the salary cap for each league so for league one each club must ensure that it's a squad's salary cap value does not exceed 2.5 million uh, for the year and in league two it's 1.5 million and, and the salary um, of an individual player is calculated um firstly by looking at what the gross basic salary of the player is but then also, and this is similar to how it was calculated before as well, uh, you have to take account of signing on fees, uh, appearance fees, uh, player bonuses, image rights. I, I, I know that was quite a, a novel way for some clubs to try and avoid um, some calculations before, but it's also used quite regularly as well, I think, you know purely for tax purposes, that image rights basis. Um, any loan fee, agent's fees payable by the club, and then even things like accommodation or holiday costs and, and, and traveling expenses as well. There are some figures that can be excluded from the calculation if permission is given from uh, the EFL. And in particular, these relate to promotion bonuses and cup bonuses. And I think there are significant exceptions because, you know, they can be a very you know big driving force for a player in those sorts of leagues. You know, but they're always striving for promotion. And if the player has that added incentive, not only of playing at a higher league, but to get a bonus from doing so as well, uh, then that is significant for clubs to have that in uh, the players' contracts. And so, so that's sort of a headline level. There are, of course, some transitional factors to bear in mind in, in respect of the salary caps too. So where a club has a player whose contract was entered before um, the 6th of August 2020, Um, that contract or or the salary under that contract will be capped at the divisional average and the divisional average for this season in league one will be just over £113,000 and for league two will be just over £68,000. The significant point to bear in mind there though is is just because uh, it was entered after the 6th of August 2020, that that sort of transitional um, rule is only of significance if that contract is in excess of the league average. If it's below, then, of course, it, it, it's a good calculation for the club and you'd want it below. Uh, it's mainly just aimed at those that have much higher contracts and don't want to be caught out by the new rules. And 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 similarly, there are provisions in respect to uh, what are known as relegated contract players. So when, when a, a club or, or a player has been relegated from uh, the championship to League One, they will naturally one would presume be earning more in the championship and so upon uh, relegation to league 1 or you know beyond that from league 1 to league 2 that player's contract a- again if it's of a significant amount uh, will be capped at the uh, the average salary as i've just mentioned so that 113,000 pounds or 68,000 uh, pounds although i think there will be some slight difference in the calculation for seasons subsequent to this one and the procedure for um, the salary cap in, uh, in League One and League Two, uh, so for this season, uh, five days after the closing of the summer transfer window, so I think it's around mid-October uh, this year that the summer transfer window will close, um, clubs are required to provide to the EFL uh, a copy of a declaration signed by uh, the club's CEO or fin- oh, sorry, and finance director or all the club's equivalent and certifying the sums that the club is expected to pay during the upcoming year uh, and that's the salary squad cap calculation. They they just simply make that declaration to the EFL uh, of what they plan to be paying throughout that season thereafter. So from next season, um, the the date for submission of um, the, the forecasted payments will be the third Friday in June. So very precise wording there in the rules. Um, So for each season, there's that declaration which forecasts what the club is going to pay. In addition to that, uh, and and the first uh, occasion of this will be from next year, is that on the 7th of July of each year, the club would also need to provide a declaration of what had been paid for the previous year. So so you you have this forecasting and then sort of a, a confirmation going on each year of what salaries have been paid by the club. Um, So, you know, procedure's relatively clear, and it's going to be interesting to see how it's implemented.
0: Thanks, Tom. And Jason, you wanted to add something more here on the salary cap.
2: Yeah, just just a small point here, and I'll I'll deal with it very briefly, but just one interesting consideration when you're looking at financial regulations in sport, that here, when we're coming to the salary cap, we're actually talking about a sort of hard cap, a hard financial measure, um, rather than a soft one. And what I mean by that is that the level of the cap doesn't vary depending on the revenues that a club receives. So it doesn't matter in League One, for example, whether you are Sunderland with the stadium of White and outside of a COVID environment, the revenues that it brings in, contrasted with a club, for example, like Rochdale, uh, it doesn't matter about the differences between the clubs and their revenues. You're ultimately treated in exactly the same way. And this differs from soft regulations that apply in an FFP context, for example, And the point that we touched on earlier about one of those side effects about somewhat entrenching the status quo for established elite sides, that's not to say that one measure is better than the other. Um, These are complicated arrangements, both legally and economically. um, And the hard cap is also not without its issues. But I think it's just an important consideration to have in mind.
0: Right. Thanks, Jason. And then to come back to you, Tom, then, can you set out for us how the enforcement process works here with the salary cap?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, as I mentioned before, there are those two declarations that a club has to make throughout the year. So what it forecasts to spend on salaries and then what it has paid on salaries as well. When following the submission of its forecasted um, declaration and upon receipt of the league considers or the EFL considers uh, that the club is forecasting to be in breach of the salary cap rules, uh, the EFL can place the club under an embargo. And then it will use its best endeavours. And again, I touched upon it earlier in respect to the championship, profitability and sustainability rules can enter or agree a business plan with the club uh, with the objective being uh, to try and reduce that forecasting of expenditure on salaries below um, the salary cap. So so that's sort of a a preemptive, a bit of a kinder way of dealing with things. Uh, But then there are also going to be instances where the salary cap has been breached and The way the enforcement goes there is that, firstly, the EFL can, uh, if it reasonably suspects there has been a breach, it can commence an investigation into the club. And if if those investigations um, show that there has been a breach of the salary cap, then there are rules that take effect um, um, in, in respect of that breach and set out specific sanctions as well. So if we're looking at a club that is overrun the salary cap by up to 5%, there are in the rules uh, specific sanctions for them. So that that specific sanction is firstly uh, what's known as an overrun tax. Uh, Up to that 5%, there are three different brackets, which mean, for example, for the first few percentages, there'll be a set fine uh, of 50p for every pound in excess of the salary cap. And then you know between two and four percent in excess, there be you'll be one pound for every one pound in excess of the salary salary cap, and then there's another level as well. If though the club has gone beyond, beyond that five percent overrun, then again again we, we saw with the Championship profitability and sustainability rules, you get that more serious breach. This will be considered misconduct by the club, and, and the way that that's treated uh, would be either by an agreed decision. And and, and this is an interesting concept. So the the agreed decision is essentially a sanction that's imposed by the EFL executive or the EFL board, Um, but it has to be something that the club agrees to. So the the EFL board or executive will will look at the sanctions that are normally available to a disciplinary commission and say, we think that this is the appropriate sanction. And of course there are sanctioning guidelines as well that will be considered. Uh, But if that agreed decision isn't agreed to, uh, then there's also the option for this matter to go to uh, a, a disciplinary commission. And again, the, the commission would consider all the circumstances of the case have reference to, to those sanctioning guidelines. But I suppose there you, you are risking you know, perhaps having a, a greater sanction you know, at, at the end of the line. If you're saying that you didn't breach it, then it turns out that you did breach it. There's also one very interesting rule that I've seen. insofar as enforcement is concerned, Mark, is that one of the rules in both the League One and the League Two salary cap rules states that uh, to ensure the proper observance and enforcement of these rules, each club agrees during the operation of the rules to notify the league of any potential loopholes, lacunae or errors in the salary cap rules now you, you, you compare this with uh, for example the the championships profitability and sustainability rules and indeed the uefa's clfpr i i don't think there's been uh that positive obligation at least from what i've seen uh upon a, a club to to notify the governing body of any loopholes or lacunae if anything they've been exploited by the clubs not in a uh, sort of, you know, uh, a bad way. They've just used the rules as they've, you know, been interpreted. Um, So it's going to be interesting to see whether any clubs do find any loopholes and if they are notified to the league as well.
0: And that goes back to something that Jason mentioned earlier with UEFA, that it may be they come to amend their rules to have something like this. So thanks for that, Tom. Now, coming back to you, Jason, obviously the salary cap is very new. So it remains to be seen what its impact is going to be. But we're going to ask you now to maybe Chris the gaze for us and think about what the impact may be.
2: Sure. Um, so I, I think the first thing is that um, the intentions that underlie these caps clearly come from a good place. They're taken in the interests of the long-term sustainability and existence of EFL clubs during really difficult times. Clubs outside the Premier League in England often have costs far exceeding their revenues. And although the caps are currently in League One and League Two at the moment, um, to give an example, spending on wages alone in the championship, for example, was understood to be on average at 107 percent of club revenues, and that was pre-COVID. So that was already arguably unsustainable, but we're now in a a different dynamic, um, and and the the sort of need for control of finances is, is clearly more serious. Um, particularly in circumstances where there's no ticketing revenue at the current time. And that's going to be really felt in League One and League Two, where broadcasting revenue typically tends to be lower and the balance goes much more in favor of um, the, the sort of day to day match day revenue. I mean, look, crystal ball gazing it, it, it is really difficult when these measures are so, so new. Ultimately, time will really tell if the measures are effective and properly enforced. We've talked about in the example of other financial measures, the challenges that can come up, and these issues are often iterative. Um, You know, looking across codes into into rugby union, uh, the premiership salary cap was recently changed, and these things often do need tweaks as you go along. So we'll see how they go. Um, I think, you know, taking one further step back, and I think Tom's going to come onto this, but there's also a question just in terms of these measures themselves as as to whether they're legally valid to start with. Um, in, in light of a, a challenge that's come forward by um, the Professional Footballers Association, the PFA.
0: Yeah, thanks for that, Jason. I think that is a good time, actually, to have your thought, Tom, on the PFA challenge. How do you see things going there? Uh, th-
3: thanks. And, yeah, th- th- this comes down to um, a legal obligation, as the PFA have put it, um, for the EFL to consult with the PFA and the professional football negotiating and consultative committee uh, over any potential changes to a player's condition uh, the, the, there's something known as the constitution of the PFNCC uh, which sets out these consultation requirements and, and what the PFA have uh, put forward they released a statement not long after the salary salary caps were announced was that because they weren't consulted in in accordance with that constitution, then the legality of the salary cap rules comes into question. Now, since that announcement has been made, there hasn't been any update as to whether uh, this matter is is going to arbitration or or whether there's been any agreement. Uh, That PFA statement that I referred to earlier called for, I, I believe it was expedited arbitration. Uh, So it could be that 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 process is is going on at the moment. But as as I say, there's been no public confirmation. Um, So it will be, you know, as things stand, these rules are in place. That's what the EFL have said. Uh, But if that legality argument succeeds, um, you know, the applicability of them is going to be thrown up in the air completely. And it will be a very interesting story to follow.
0: Thanks, Tom. And with the PFA being representative for the players, it brings into sharp focus. How much there is an employment angle to introducing a salary cap here jason if i could bring things back to you could you share your thoughts on the ribbon for employment dispute there
2: yeah sure so so i should just say that we aren't represented on this call by uh by anyone from our excellent employment team but it is a point that i worked with them previously on and we talked about on sporting uh sporting LinkedIn in a similar area so um I won't delve into too much detail but it's no surprise to see that some of the caps only triggering around renewals in certain respects as tom mentioned when he was running through how these work in practice so the employment relationship is one that is ultimately between the club and the individual player um it's a sort of bilateral relationship that you have there you know speaking generally a club cannot unilaterally change a player's terms and in the same way, nor can the EFL simply intervene, to cut a player's salary. It's a contract between player and club. Um, and doing so risks a legal challenge. And, and where we saw this during, uh, where, where we saw this and where I've considered this previously with, with our, our excellent employment team was during the immediate impact of the pandemic when wage deferrals and pay cuts were a hot topic of discussion in the context of contracts, which typically uh, run to a 30th of June uh, annual basis, um, and therefore you had expiring contracts before the season had had finished because of uh, everything having to press pause. Um, we covered on the Sporting Links uh, blog, and, and I subsequently spoke to um, Arsenal podcaster and blogger Ask blog about this, but the, the key point there was that FIFA could only issue guidance about extending contracts and salary cuts. Ultimately, these are matters for, for clubs and their employees. So um you know the the measures are ones that need to be considered carefully um you know not only by the efl in terms of sort of how they apply and how they're enforced but also um, between clubs and players in terms of understanding the impact on the employment relationship and the contractual terms
0: and while there's room for dispute between club and player there's also room for dispute between club and club while these rules are still new what are your thoughts on that jason
2: yeah, so 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 another area that I, I wanted to touch on was just in, in the competition sector, um, and I, I think it's going to be really fascinating to see kind of what happens there. Clearly, a large number of clubs did support these measures. Um, that's how they passed, um, you know, meeting a requirement that 16 of 24 clubs in each league agree to the changes. But for some of the sort of traditionally bigger clubs, in League One for particular, the rules are eventually going to bite pretty hard. So it's no surprise to have seen clubs like Portsmouth, for example, quite vocally raising competition law concerns. And to be clear, salary caps can give rise to competition issues. Um, Our team's written about on the Sporting Links blog a proposed cap that was um, suggested for Portuguese women's football and ultimately abandoned. Um, And there were a variety of reasons for that. Partly it was considered that it could be discriminatory. Um, and, in other respects, potentially comparable to an input price-fixing agreement. But this is a trend to really watch, not just in England and in the EFL, but across European football, as authorities in many jurisdictions have turned their attention now to salary cap measures. And we've seen challenges, uh, you know, taking the, the Portuguese salary cap on one side. We've also seen unsuccessful challenges in rugby, again, um, in respect to Saracens and the allegations, um and, and uh, penalties ultimately brought against it in that area so you know in terms of things to watch going forward this could be a real hotbed for disputes
0: thanks jason and i think that's a good place there to wrap things up plenty of food for thought for our listeners so thank you jason thank you Callan. thank you tom and thank you for joining us today Uh, I encourage you to check out Tom's website, footballlaw.co.uk, and also to sign up for the Sporting Links blog on the Linklater's website. Bye for now.